Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. to episode 76 of The Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast hosted by Cremont Alderton <laughs> and Pandora Sykes. That is a bit of a nasty joke, actually, about the fact that I have been gifted some Cremont. Because what is Cremont? I talk so much about it. Well, now that you ask, and if any brands are listening, yes, I would like as many cases as you can spare. It is like Prosecco for 30-somethings. So is, it, is it like more full-bodied? It's like more, it's more kind of biscuity and dry like champagne. So why not just have champagne? Because it's cheaper than champagne and it's not. Champagne can only be made in champagne region with champagne grapes, I think. Yes, yes. Otherwise it's like a sparkling wine. So that, that's the sparkling wine in France that's produced is called Cremant. And it's not, I just, I just cannot abide Prosecco anymore. Well, there you go, listeners. She cannot abide Prosecco. Cremant. But she likes Cremant. Did you do anything for Halloween, Cremant? <laughs> I was asleep by 9.30, which was the biggest treat, not trick of all. I think I am the only woman in the world, slash Instagram, who did not dress up as a handmaid. I know, yeah. That costume did well this year. And Villanelle. Oh, yes. Yeah, no, I didn't do anything. I also was very tickled by every outfit on Sex and the City, the best Instagram account ever. You love that account. Did a collection of all the different um, Sex and the City themed Halloween costumes including four people dressed as a giant post-it that said I'm sorry I can't don't hate me so good is there a scrunchie? I think there was there was that there was um, like 80s Miranda with the flashback Miranda with the like with the salad box <laughs> in, in this power suit with massive white trainers it was mainly Miranda to be honest but yeah, it was great. So go on to every outfit on Sex and the City. I will those. now. I want to see Trip Down Memory Lane. I want to begin this episode with something I read in the week, this week, lol, which is something I've been thinking about quite a lot. Namely, why are we always talking about Trump and not the terrifying new alt-right president in Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, a fascist, misogynist, racist, homophobe, or Erdogan, who has more journalists in jail than any other nation. So this by Caroline Law, I took very much as a reminder, which I wanted to share with other people, to stop talking about fucking Brexit and Trump and only Brexit and Trump and to widen our conversational horizons. Scores of people are killed when a train ploughs into a crowd of festival goers. Had such a disaster taken place in a suburb of Paris, it would have been front page news in Britain. As it happened in the Punjab, it was not much remarked upon. The British media are often accused of neglecting news that doesn't affect white people. And there's truth in that. But it's not all about race. Last week, a teenager walked into his college and shot dead 20 of his classmates and teachers. School massacres in America make major headlines here. If you didn't read about this one, it wasn't because the victims weren't white. They were. It was because this college was in Crimea. 
Saturated in US culture and familiar with its history and politics, we find it easy to connect with events in faraway America in a way that we don't with, say, China. Similarly, we're more likely to take an interest in news from France or Italy than from Bulgaria or Ukraine. It's safe to say that if the war in eastern Ukraine were being fought in Alsace, we'd be hearing more about it. Being or feeling close to events is one factor, our ability to engage with them another. We don't pay much attention when politicians in India are accused of corruption. We do when they're brought down by Me Too. We're not sure what to think about a mass shooting in Crimea or even about the war in Yemen. We have strong views about gun laws in the US and the conflict in the Middle East. To really engage, it seems we need to be able to take a side. I was also pleased to see that our dairy farmer got in touch to tell us that there is more water in single cream. Ah, That's the difference between single and double cream. We it. could have just consulted Google, but it's more fun this way. And I think it puts a new spin on Ask the Hilo, which is asked by the Hilo. Also, I now anoint this family in New Zealand. They are our dairy correspondents, I think, for the Hilo, officially now. And bovine. And bovine, yeah. All actually... All agricultural matters, I think, we have now assigned to them. We've got a lot, actually. Congratulations. We actually, we're actually just offering you the job. You can get in touch. You don't have to take it, and then it will be... There are currently no other positions open. <laughs> we'll be open to other listeners. A lot of listeners also got in touch in regards to the question of whether we should boycott Topshop in light of the allegations, which we found really interesting. Debbie said, if you boycott Topshop, you don't hurt Philip Green. He's made his millions. You hurt everyone else who works in the business, from the Saturday staff working to pay their way through uni to employees that are the main breadwinners in their family. And another listener added, the people actually creating and running Topshop, Topman, Miss Selfridge, and all the other brands are not Philip Green. It's important to remember he's just the owner with too much input. People put a lot of time and effort into collections for consumers. And by boycotting Topshop, you're boycotting all the women working behind the scenes to get relevant fashionable and well-priced clothing to you whilst also having to deal with philip i actually agree with that Mm. i think that's probably my sentiment on it as well Mm. we also had a lot of emails in response to our discussion of sally hughes's excellent piece about family estrangement here's one in particular that we'd like to read Thank you both for mentioning that article, which had a massive ripple effect when Sally published it. She's even set up a closed Facebook support group for those of us estranged from family members. I've been estranged from my parents and one of my four sisters for almost a year now, after over 10 years as an adult begging them to be just a little more considerate and not to be so cruel about my life and the people in it. It's heartbreaking, but even sadder was the realisation that I had never been happier and more at peace. Yet it still feels like a shameful secret, almost as if I have failed as a child. Thank you both, too, for acknowledging the privilege of having normal, loving parents. There can be such a gulf of understanding, and it's a terribly lonely place. Family is so crucial to our survival as children, and so we normalise everything we encounter. It sounds as if you are both one of the lucky ones whose normal is exactly as it should be. The best analogy I can come up with is that it's like having an awful boss at a lifelong job that you simply can't quit. God, that's devastating, isn't it? Yes, you might get paid. My parents raised me. But if you are being manipulated and bullied every single day, at what cost? Happily cutting them out and reducing my expectation of them to zero means that I can and have found all these things elsewhere. Thank you for sharing your experience. Yes, thank you so much. And I'm really pleased to hear that people who have experienced um, familial estrangement are getting in touch with one another. Yeah. On a lighter note, our chat on slogan t-shirts produced a slew of late 90s and early noughties nostalgia. 
Um, Ollie also remembered another one on that note, which was mainly worn by middle-aged men, female body <laughs> inspector with the FBI logo on the back. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> anyway, this is from Joe. I had a T-shirt with I'm just knocking futs. Can you see what uh, it did there? And a G-string, remember the thong phase? Gross. That declared, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough on the front. I was 13. In year six, she goes on, on a school trip to ruin, I bought more magazine on the ferry home and sat openly reading Position of the Fortnight while some of the girls from another school looked on. I thought I was the baddest chick to ever board a red flag. <laughs> foul isn't it um, I just had to the mention of Moore's position of the fortnight just brought back so many memories and I do you know who to, used to do Moore's position of the fortnight that's what my fact was Laura Atkinson deputy editor of style and friend of the Hilo, was the editor of position of the fortnight I once asked her if she uh, tried them all out in advance and her response whilst not verbal insinuated that no <laughs> some of these were Purely mythical, I think you could almost say. Oh, they say. were mythical. I remember looking at them and being like, I just, uh, I think I was a virgin for most of the time I was reading them. Reading. Um, but I remember thinking, I just don't know how any... <laughs> reading. I don't know how anyone would be able, would be able to do that. Or RIP more. The reason I am... Um, I actually found, only found that out about Laura a couple of weeks ago because I was filing my column to her and uh, there was a joke about oral sex in it and I said, am I allowed to put a joke about oral sex in? She was like, you're talking to the person who edited Moore's <laughs> sex position of the fortnight, so yes. <laughs> she just corrected your errors and moved on. <laughs> also this week, amongst my friends at least, Gary Janetti's Prince George memes have gone viral. Very funny captions of... Prince George, so for example, there's is it one him of... being sassy, basically. Yeah. My only thing about that is there's this real George meme movement online, and have you seen this thing about people saying that George, Prince George is gay? She was hoping to marry him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just him being a kid and doing these slightly campy. But also, positions. I think that actually, like, and that's what I think. So many like problematic I things, know. but not not people guessing that he's. Gay. There's obviously nothing wrong with being gay, and you might be able to tell if someone's gay at the age of four. It's more just that a camp mannerism means that we immediately have to try and nail down, or that we even think we sort of have the right to try and nail down someone's a child, a child who still hasn't decided his own identity and should be exploring himself. Our four-year-old's quite flamboyant. Yeah, I mean it's ridiculous, but it's it's a real kind of movement online, and that I do think it's the obsession with the royal family. Yeah, yeah. She says, having just recommended a uh, 700,000 follower strong Instagram account of Prince George. He, but Prince George has become this like breakout star of the royal family. Oh, people quite like um, Charlotte as well. But pe- why do people love George so much? I mean, I guess his faces are quite good. Yeah, he does do good little faces. Because kids are fucking great. Yeah. Kids' faces, they're so malleable. They're like plasticine. They're just <laughs> so much fun. In other news, this was the week that a poorly judged joke about veganism lost a man his job. William Sitwell, editor of Waitrose Food magazine and an occasional judge on MasterChef, replied to a freelancer pitch on vegan cookery with, how about a series on killing vegans one by one? Ways to trap them, how to interrogate them properly, expose their hypocrisy, force feed them meat, make them eat steak and drink red wine. The response was then screen grabbed, shared online, there was a sizable backlash and then he had to resign. Zoe Williams wrote for The Guardian that she believed this was not a sackable offence. 
she says. It is not a reply dripping with wit, and if you saw it at a live event, at a party, say, you might be moved to weigh in with ten good reasons why vegans haven't really been targets for mockery since the 80s, why filling your face with animal products isn't the rock-solid proof of social and intellectual superiority it once was, and why, since we're here, if you're holding the power in an email exchange, it's better if you're not a dick. But this is not a sackable offence. It is not a resignable offence. It is not a threat of violence unless we're going to take every email at face value, every X as a kiss, call a lifeguard every time anyone says they're drowning. It is not bigotry against a discriminated group, except by the most circuitous means. You'd have to start with meat-eating as a prejudice against animals and work from there. Brilliant piece by Mm. uh, Zoe. Listen, I'm not vegan, so... I can't understand what it feels like to have jokes made at your expense about your eating choices. But what I will say is veganism is not a religion or a race or a gender. It doesn't hold the same terrifying and historical Mm. prejudices. It was a daft joke, but I grew up my whole life listening to pejorative Essex girl jokes and I survived. I, I think you can hear that as a vegan and call him a dickhead if you want or call it daft call it or or not be bothered at all but I agree with her I don't think it's a sackable events and I know veganism and being an Essex girl it's not the same but I do think we get up in arms about the wrong things these days I agree I thought resignation was totally uncalled for and yeah I think in a part I I mean I think it is an offensive joke actually I do think it's offensive but I think an apology would have sufficed and I am really worried we're creating a language and culture when it comes to veganism where we kind of conflate it with as you say oppressed minorities yeah Yeah. veganism is a lifestyle choice speaking as a non-meat eater on ethical grounds I personally think it's a very respectable and very admirable lifestyle choice, but it's not historical oppression as Pandora states, and neither should it be treated as such. The marginalised party here, if there are any other animals being eaten, and, you know, no one is trying to eat a vegan. You don't know what I get up to on my weekends, Dolly. (laughs) Moving on, this week it was revealed that Grimsby has the most unhealthy high street in the UK and Edinburgh the healthiest. The Royal Society for Public Health ranked high streets with more payday lenders, bookmakers, tanning salons and fast food outlets as the worst. A bit riveted by the tanning salon bit. I guess it must be an education issue because of the dangers we know Mm. of tanning now. Mm. Interesting. Healthiest high streets were ones with lots of health services, libraries, museums, art galleries, leisure centres and opticians. There was a clear link, unsurprisingly, between deprived areas and unhealthy high streets. Speaking of bookies, I was very sad to see that Tracy Crouch, the sports minister and minister for loneliness, resigned over delays to a crackdown on maximum stakes for fixed odds betting machines. Such a principled decision. I totally back her. I find the ease in which you can become addicted to gambling, particularly for vulnerable people um, in the UK, really terrifying. Mm. But I'm really sad to see her go. Although, obviously, she can do lots outside of government too. Perhaps she can actually yeah. do more outside yes, of exactly. government. We'd previously talked about her on the high-low with her new appointment as Minister for Loneliness, so I look forward to seeing what she does next. It is sad, as loneliness is such an enormous problem in this country, and I, I think it, it still deserves analysis and strategy. But as you say, I, I totally admire her decision on account of her principles, and hopefully the role won't dissolve with her departure. Well, I can't actually find what's happening with that role. A new Mm. sports minister's been appointed, but there's no news that I have found on there being the replacement minister for loneliness. And I agree it would be a great shame if that role was dissolved. What have you been reading and enjoying this week, Prosecco Sykes? (laughs) 
Well, Tremont, <laughs> I wasn't very well on Friday, so I did a big iPlayer binge. I can recommend Little Drummer Girl, The Informer, which is absolutely brilliant. It is so quick and clever and the many everyday prejudices it confronts. I cannot believe that Naban Rizwan had never acted before. He is sensational and everyone who's seen it. I've had so many conversations with people where it just goes... Oh my god, have you seen Informer? Oh my god, it's I've so never good. even heard of it. Oh my Informer. god, it's so good. It's, it's it's on BBC iPlayer at the moment. God, BBC and are just smashing it with They the really are. I know that it's like you recommending the Sainsbury's app to say that BBC drama's really good, but in the age of kind of Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Amazon Prime, Amazon and all you of know, those it's much harder for those all, channels now. Absolutely brilliant at the moment. Little Drummer Girl with Alexander Skarsgård and Florence Pugh, also brilliant. I think you'll really like it. I think you'll really like all the 70s outfits um and my last recommendation from iplayer is there she goes which is a absolutely fantastic bbc4 comedy drama about bringing up a disabled child it's very heavy but also wonderfully uplifting oh Um, i want to watch that with jessica hines it's really life enriching it really puts forward the idea that parents of a severely disabled child don't necessarily know what they're doing they don't know how to deal with it any more than people who don't have a disabled child they don't know the right language to use david tennant plays the father and there's a lot of very funny moments Mm. where he has to be corrected by his very woke PC neighbour because he doesn't have the right kind of language or tools to describe his daughter. So as you say, Jessica Hines um, plays the mother, um, absolutely brilliant, knows there's something wrong with her baby. Everyone's telling her, no, she's fine, she's tiny, she's perfectly formed. And she's like, there is something wrong Mm. with my baby. I'm not being paranoid. David Tennant's absolutely amazing as a slightly avoidant... Um, alcohol dependent in the early days father Yasmin Akram who is an Irish comedian and actor who played Jonesy in Lovesick did you watch Lovesick? yeah she plays Jonesy um she is hilarious as the best friend. It's written by the comedy writer Sean Pye and it's based on his true experiences as the father of a um, severely disabled daughter. And it just, I think the truth of it, the, you know, the fact that it's based on a real, his, his real experience imbues it with such heart and soul mm. and meaning. I just loved it and I cannot recommend it enough. It's, it sounds like really new storytelling territory and, and, and so vital much coverage yeah. on it i was i was delving for interviews i was dying to know more about the making mm. of it and aside from a couple of bits in the guardian and radio times there was nothing big on it and i have to say i'm fascinated why it's not because mm. it's one of the best things i've watched mm. for a long time and on Netflix, I checked out The Good Place, a fantasy show about heaven and hell, which stars Jamila Jamil, in fact. It's I've very had so many recommendations for this. Well, it's very whimsical, but also very watchable. It's from the same guy who made Parks and Recreation, Michael Schur, which I know has a huge cult fan base. I really need to check it out. Have you watched Parks and Recreation? No, but people are cultish about Absolutely it. Absolutely obsessed yeah. with it, aren't they? So I really want to check it out. Um, the Good Place is, yeah, I mean, it's not like... It didn't have me up all night thinking, but it's it's but it's it's a really novel um, premise, and it's you know it's slick and it's mm. entertaining, and it's a really good thing to watch if you're feeling ill or down when those BBC dramas, excellent as they are, Can might heavy. yeah might not might not be the thing. It's a bit like when you were going to watch the whole of Killing Eve on your hangover, which I did, and then I got too scared to let the delivery man. I mean, it's a terrible idea. It's a terrible <laughs> idea. 
As for reading, this week I read A Love Story for Bewildered Girls by Emma Morgan, which is a debut fiction published by Penguin Random House's Right Now Scheme. Have you heard of this scheme, Dolly? No. As a Penguin... Can I call you a Penguin alumni? Yeah. yeah? As a Penguin alumni. So it aims to seek out, mentor and publish new writers from underrepresented communities from communities underrepresented on the nation's bookshelves. So the author, Emma, is a former support worker from Liverpool and she was in the first intake of mentees. Mm, I have read about this. It's such a good initiative. I am so glad this scheme exists, if only because it has brought one of my most favourite books into my life. I wish I'd written this book, but I never could have in a million years because my mind does not work like that. It wouldn't have ever come out of me. It's so clever and funny and sweet and original. If I was to use those awful words, I would call it quirky and kooky. It (laughs) reminds me a bit of The Girl's Guide to Hunting and Fishing just for its gorgeous simplicity. I, I, I mean, it's... I, I can't really describe why I felt the same way. I know you loved that book, so yeah, it's book. Um, me giving it that as kind of the yeah. ultimate accolade. I gobbled it over a few days to the real detriment of my work. It follows three women in Yorkshire in their late 20s and early 30s. Violet, a bisexual woman who's suffering from depression. Annie, her flatmate, a lawyer who's looking for a man, but, you know doesn't think she'll ever find one that's good enough, quite frankly. And Grace, a psychotherapist from a huge, mad, rambling family. And all Grace wants is a really, really nice girlfriend. It deals with gender, sexuality, class, ambition and mental health. I cannot recommend this book enough. It comes out in February 2019. So you can pre-order it on Hive, which is the indie bookseller version of Amazon, which I've been making sure that we link to in the show notes after a listener recommendation proves how desperately desperately we need these schemes in publishing and not in like a really wanking like we have to look after you know the little people it's not because it's really fucking great writing more that there's really fucking great writing that we need to see more of um and here's an example so i absolutely loved it bravo penguin bravo emma morgan what have you been enjoying this week cremont (laughs) well prosecco there was a really, really brilliant interview with Sheridan Smith in The Guardian this weekend. I love her. I know. I really, really like her. And she came across so well in this interview, and I really applaud her honesty in it, because it was... I think she's been through hell, really, the last few years. She's spoken a bit about that, hasn't mm. she? She hasn't tried to hide it, I don't feel. No, but the, the sad thing is, is that she's had this kind of long... Over the period of her kind of enormous success she had this kind of long sustained low level breakdown from the Mm. sounds of things and I think what was so frustrating for her that I get from this interview is that she wasn't she didn't have the language for and she wasn't so forthcoming with the fact that she was in the throes of enormous mental health difficulties Mm. namely anxiety which again is prescient for what we're going to be talking about today Um, and the way that because she was you know, she was known as being a bit of a party girl when she was younger. Is that not just from going out with James Corden, though? It seemed like yeah. such an odd mantle for her to have to hold the whole of her career when she was doing, like, really valid I know, work. and I also think a lot of it is actually class snobbery, actually. Yes. I think, you know, she had two... Uh, she's a working-class northern girl. She had two kind of showbiz parents. And I think a lot of it is an identity that was foisted on her by the tabloids. Yeah. And what I get from this very very well observed interview is that it was so upsetting and frustrating that for so long the way that her um breakdown and her absences from her work was um 
discussed in a public forum was that she was a kind of selfish drunk like she was mm-hmm. this old soak who didn't have a work ethic and what is so um apparent when you read an interview with her is that this is a woman who likes hard work this is a woman who you know she's old school show business it's from it's the stock she's from so I think that is felt like an enormous part of her identity being taken away from her when that became just like a running showbiz joke that she was um unprofessional on account of you know partying but it's also a very uplifting interview I was very moved by the ending which is very hopeful and positive about her comeback and about how she's taking her story on the road in a kind of proper one woman show with music and I'd love to see it where she talks about what she's been through and then accompanies it with music with music and I think as always what happens with these kind of stars that ascend so fast People forget the reason her star ascended so fast is she's really, really talented. She's an incredible musical theatre performer. Um, So I just hope the best for her because I think she's evidently enormously talented and has been through a lot. She talks a lot about the death of her father and how she kind of came apart after that happened. And she just seems like a very lovely woman and a very talented performer. I would also like to flag a new podcast series and it's not because I'm the interviewee for the first episode, I promise. It's because our friend, the very brilliant journalist Daisy Buchanan, has started a podcast series that is just, it's such a great idea and I know that so many Hilo listeners are real bookworms and this is a bookworm's dream, this podcast, it's called Your Book. Bookworm's Wet Dream. <laughs> it's so wormy again this episode um it's called you're booked and daisy goes around to people's houses and she examines their bookshelves and it's a kind of long conversation about the books that have formed and influenced um her interviewees and it kind of it kind of meanders off into conversations about how we read and how we give books and how we write um and she's got some literary version of desert island that's exactly what it is and she's such a great interviewer and she's got some really exciting people such as nina stibby um you know writers that we really really admire so i would like to flag that as a great new book podcast i also loved morwenna ferrier on uh the fashion in killing eve for the guardian yeah there's been a lot on um on her her high fashion look yeah it's a really uh it's really an analytical and interesting piece talking about well first of all i didn't realize that so much of it was with fashion was just following the cues of the books of which it was adapted from apparently in the books there are moments of a murder that happens in a Valentino dress or whatever, you know, it is really? that. I didn't know that. That's yeah. quite interesting as well because they're written by Luke Jennings and not to be too prescriptive here, but typically when there's, I was about to say typically when it's a male author, there's not many descriptions descriptions of fashion, but my God, I've read some like terrible fashion cues from male authors, like the kind of thing, it's yeah. a bit like Burger with the scrunchie. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah, when, yeah, when exactly. it's a male author and they write that the woman turned up in like, white pedal pushes and you're like (laughs) that's never gonna happen mate anyway Luke Jennings obviously did it very well and she also gives some really nice little behind the scenes morsels such as Sandra O's hair is something that they put in the script obviously after they cast Sandra O because she does I read an interview the other day part of her shtick is is letting all of her amazing hair out and then just going like yeah yeah she's got big bouncy curly hair and they decided that Villanelle would become obsessed with this gorgeous hair that she had so that was like a detail that they put in after they cast her and they also um 
they, she also interviews people who worked on in the costume department and they said there was a really important uh, distinction to be made between um, Sandra's sartorial identity and Villanelle's mm. and they wanted Sandra's to... Um, fade into the background more so she had it, her trench coat she has like an anorak I think which is actually Sandra O's anorak that she wears which was perfect for her character and kind of to act as a foil to Villanelle's clothing and I just loved it because I think one of the things I loved so much about Killing Eve is the way that um, the the occupations and interests of the traditionally feminine were incorporated as part of the story rather than being a distraction from it. And I think it goes back to that Zadie Smith quote that I think of all the time, which is, we have to find a way to make the traditionally feminine not humiliating. Yes, that's so interesting. I'd say that's what Sex and the City did as well. Mm. The fashion was such a huge and non-shameful Yeah, and non-distracting. It's of, not, yeah. Of that show. And actually, for any massive Sex and the City fans, I discovered this week all of the scripts from every single series of Sex and the City. It's satctranscripts.com. Amazing. Someone found the time to type <laughs> all of them up. That will definitely be my rainy day reading. Um, so, yeah, I really enjoyed that piece because I just think, you know, I know that for a lot of women, fashion and clothing is not that important. I totally accept that. But for a lot of women, it is, and it's an important part of identity. So I think we shouldn't be scared of of exploring that in our stories for fear of someone saying that it trivialises something, you know. It doesn't. Pandora is literally wearing a polo neck that says sex on her tits today. So I that's once, how she's expressing herself. I once wore this for a meeting with the editor of the Sunday Times paper. And I remember <laughs> when I came I remember when I came back and uh, the editor of Star was like, Oh, did you have to wear that today? <laughs> Finally I'd like to recommend a classic vice piece. This is the platonic ideal of a vice piece. It was sent to me by Helen Neonius. Um, And the reason she found it so interesting, the piece is on how men should respond to nude photographs. And it's so, so funny. And the reason Helen Helen sent it to me is that Helen's been with her partner for well over a decade. So she said the whole the whole kind of part of courting that includes exchanging sets or nude photos. She was like, I just completely bypassed. So she's so fascinated about, you know, because for a lot of people, it is like. It is this sort of rather banal part of courtship. The piece is written by Emma Garland, and I just, it's one of those pieces that's so funny, I keep going back to it to reread it. I've just got it open as a tab on Can my phone. Can you read phone. me an excerpt? It's so good. Yeah, I'll, I'll read one now. It's like a list of do's and don'ts. Don't say these things. When canvassing opinion for this piece, someone told me that their friend once sent a nude that was met with the response, You look heavy, good job, I'm strong, which is unusual it sort of sounds like he's making a negative comment about her weight but was realistically just the only opportunity he could think of to highlight his ability to bench it's almost a compliment almost a flex but veers too far off topic and as a result becomes a weird neg it's also just a bit too close to the sort of mistakes dads make on the rare occasion they have to engage with someone's appearance you know like when your mum comes home with a new hairdo and he's like that's very brown (laughs) Anyway, if the logical response to your response is thanks, then it's probably not a very good one. Other entries in this category include your skin looks nice. Dang, how much was that underwear, lol? Sick, you've got something by insert male tattoo artist here. What's he like? 
thanks. Do say these things instead. Fuck shit. Fuck shit. Wow, you look good. Anything that makes the person feel like they what they have done is monumental and hot, even if it's a simple photo of a tongue. You have to follow that up with something, though. A photo of a similar tone, some encouragement, intentions. You can't expect the other person to do all the heavy lifting while you just sit there swearing. <laughs> Didn't you once write a piece on dick pics? Oh, God, back in the day of the dating Where you had to interview men. Oh, yes, I did. Correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't a lot of the men who sent dick pics, like, not particularly expect nor were interested in getting any, like, puss pics back? Yeah. They were just professionals. They were just... They were just professional dick pickers. When I was interviewing um, men about sending dick pics, my favourite thing that came out in the wash, which luckily the style editors kept in, is that one of the men I interviewed sends so many that he has a preferred pose that he thinks women like. What is it? It was so it could show off the entire shaft and scrotum. Oh, I th- I would have thought is the scrotum the nice bit? He seemed to think that women reacted well to the scrotum being part of the picture. God, there are there are different women out there to me. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Our guest this week is the writer Olivia Sujic. Her first hugely successful novel, Sympathy, is a story about Alice, a 23-year-old English writer in New York who becomes obsessed with Mizuko, a Japanese writer whose life story has strange parallels to her own and who she believes is her internet twin. It has been described as a thrilling tale of obsession, doubling, blood ties and our tormented efforts to connect in the digital age. It has also been described as the first great Instagram novel. But it is Exposure, the extraordinary personal essay Olivia wrote in the aftermath of Sympathy's publication and success that we are going to talk about today. The essay is both an account of the anxiety, confidence and identity crisis she experienced after publishing her first book while trying to attempt a second. And it is also an exploration of anxiety, paranoia, insomnia, self-doubt and self-sabotage, drawing on a chorus of her favourite female writers and their wisdom, including Eleanor Ferrante, Maggie Nelson and Rachel Cusk. As soon as we read Exposure, we wanted you to come on the high-low because, and I hope you won't take offence at this, it was such an uncomfortable, confronting read for both of us. Anxiety is something that we have both suffered from chronically at times, but it's not something we've ever really talked about on the high-low, deliberately, I might add. The book spoke to us in a lot of similar but also different ways to Dolly, who, like you, is in the tender, exposing terrain of post-publication. She had to read it in chunks because it spoke so viscerally to what she's going through as a successful author. And I identified so much of my own anxiety, namely that of the dread, as you call it, this all-encompassing weight that threatened to engulf me from the moment I got up, like a 
nameless beasts searching for something or anything tangible to attach itself to. Anxiety is the modern epidemic. An estimated 264 million people worldwide have an anxiety disorder, with women nearly twice as likely to be diagnosed as men. You write early in your essay, my own admission to moderate anxiety will surely be met with eye rolls. Another one, another snowflake cry for attention, safe spaces, trigger warnings and mindfulness colouring books. This resonated so deeply with me because I think it's what stopped me for so long from getting help is you hear that everyone's anxious all the time. So what made you want or rather feel compelled to write this very personal revealing essay? Was it catharsis or compulsion or both? I think it's ended up being both. I think the um, it was a conversation I was having with those closest to me but feeling like each time I wasn't quite saying what I meant to say and that I now look back and see that getting it all down on paper was actually a really helpful way for me to kind of I suppose make myself feel bigger than it Mm -hmm. Um, and yet when I first wrote it it actually wasn't I didn't really have a kind of noble idea in mind. I was asked to write a personal essay as part of a series. The one before me was about being mixed race. The one after me was about, um, she's a translator um, who uh, translated The Vegetarian for, you know, Han Kang and won the International Booker Prize. So I, sandwiched between those two sort of essays, felt quite like, ah, I don't really have something that's mine that I would be comfortable writing a personal essay about except for this thing that keeps coming up that I keep seeing in, you know, the news and the things that I read on my social media feeds, which is anxiety. So I had this sense that it is relevant, but at the same time I worried it was saturated. And I remember speaking to a magazine editor, I was going to pitch to her some ideas, and I raised, not even like getting into the subject of the pitch, but I raised anxiety, and she said, oh yeah, the new feminism. And I was like, okay, well I will not be pitching that then. Um, And it was just this funny feeling that like, either what I've got to say is so obvious, it doesn't need to be said, or what I've got to say is going to help people because it resonates so deeply. So I wasn't sure. Ubiquity speaks to Yeah, I wasn't sure which way, but I sort of felt like... It would be useful um, to update the experience of what it feels like to be a woman suffering it and a woman specifically in the sense of feeling exposed because I felt like there were lots of texts that I had read when I was trying to write my novel and, and things like that that were maybe written in the 80s that were great but didn't really speak to the very different moment that we're having now. With the digital age. which Yeah, Goodreads, Amazon, oh my God, all of that stuff did not exist, you know, when, when the kind of great how-to-write type books were written. And so I sort of felt like, okay, so anxiety can be a thread in this essay, but mainly I'm going to write it with that in mind. Obviously then when I got to write it, it kind of all turned around and I felt like anxiety was the unifying thing. And I've been so surprised and I guess overwhelmed in a good way by how many people have yeah, said it resonates with them. I mean, I'm sad and glad that it does resonate so deeply. But yeah, so I I guess I wrote it kind of because I can't say no to things. I was like, yeah, okay, I'll write an essay for you. (laughs) And then now I'm like, I'm so pleased that I have. And it's been such a kind of cathartic experience, I suppose. The book opens with a quote from the artist Chris Krauss that I found incredibly profound, which is, why does everyone think women are debasing themselves when we expose the conditions of our own debasement? It's a kind of low level, but I think ever 
present cultural misogyny that I've experienced in relation to my own writing over the years, that a woman writing about her experience of humiliation or anxiety or even abuse or an extreme sense of inadequacy at the hand of a patriarchal culture is more embarrassing than the culture itself. When you were writing the essay, you talk about the, you anticipate the eye roll. Was that in the back of your mind, that sort of inevitable minimising response? Definitely. I mean, I think there is perhaps what we might call the inner critic, which is valuable for a writer to have. Like, I think that I'm probably a better writer than I would be if I was complacent about the things that I was Mm. writing, if I just assumed that what I was writing was going to be of interest. But at the same time, I think there is a difference between what is a healthy inner critic and what is just self-censorship, which comes from, like you say, us internalising you know, ever since, for me anyway, at school, the, the sense that if you... I guess it comes from, like, telling on people. That somehow reflects more on you than it does on the thing that you're telling on. And I think perhaps... I mean, I'm not a mother, but I think that amongst my friends who are mothers, they're trying to change that culture of, like, women internalising the problem so that they become the problem by vocalising it. I definitely felt, however, the whole time I was writing it, this sense of real... Um, almost preempting judgment mm. and that can you know it has its uses in the sense that you can anticipate where your critics are going to come after you as well. but it can also absolutely freeze you paralyze you and I think the way I actually slightly got through that was um no offense to my editor Sam but assuming that no one was going to read it <laughs> so I sort of thought okay well this at the moment is just a kickstarter so who knows where it's going to go um and That's also great that <laughs> a, a different kind of publishing route gave you that freedom that you hadn't really had with your yeah. mainstream success yeah it your, was very... I mean this has been very successful but you didn't have that feeling it was really a very didn't... different um approach and I think it's really useful to think of yourself when you're a writer not as um necessarily beholden to one mode of doing these things I actually listened uh, to a writer give a talk recently who said you know you know the big publishing houses are great you know you get an advance you know hooray um but they're almost like ocean liners like they're slow to get moving and once they've started they're unstoppable and I felt a bit like that with my first novel is you know what have I set in motion this is now like you know unstoppable and I and I wish I could go back and edit what I said and the timelines are so long that after two years you kind of no longer feel at all like what you said in that book really represents who you are now yeah, that must be weird for you guys, as I've obviously never written a book, so I've never had, like, a tangible... I mean, I've written, like, an essay for a book, but I've never had a tangible example of what I thought once. When you guys hold your books, are you, like... Does it does it feel like you want to rewrite it? Well, Sadie Smith says something that I really agree with. She says, the best time for editing for editing your own work is um, three minutes before you're due on stage yeah. at Literary Festival. Yeah, I and suddenly, say that. It's suddenly so true. everything is, all the tedium, all the like mistakes are glaringly obvious. And, and I think, you know, so scrutiny and exposure can be great in terms of making yourself, um, editing yourself. And that's obviously a good tool to have. But with a small press... I suddenly felt like, okay, this is almost happening in real time. Mm. I wrote it actually in about the space of three weeks and it just felt like, you know, well, I mean, from, from initial idea to kind of editing myself, it felt like, okay, I'm, I'm at least going to be talking about this and experiencing the reaction to it when I'm still kind of in the same mm. mode. Whereas I think what happened with, with the novel was that I, it was so long or, you know, 
these days a year or two years is a long time mm-hmm. to wait for like the you know the gap between conception and something actually coming out into the world and how old were you when you actually penned sympathy 25 <laughs> see that is the this is the thing as well the difference between a 25 year old right old and a 27 year old turning 30 and two months time <laughs> yeah that's a, that's a big also i found those five years i don't know about you guys but those five years were the most changeable Hugely, in yeah. my life a lot of people say it's your early 20s you know that kind of if you went to university that moving into kind of adulthood but I didn't really think about adulthood to my to my last five years of my 20s but what you say about kind of self-surveillance I think you were thinking about and then you were saying about with your friends who are mothers is I completely agree with that like I really hope that my daughter doesn't have that same kind of self-surveillance where she's almost watching everything she does as if she's like a third party ready to like you know, there's it's there's nothing kind of... It's so different the way I behave and consider how I behave compared to my husband. Like, I always say the massive difference between us is he walks into a room and he knows he belongs. Whereas I walk into a room and I look at myself from every single corner and every single ceiling fixture <laughs> and, and then try and make up an impression of yeah. my value in that room. And you'll end up often in conversation, whatever, you know trying to assume what it is those people want to hear and then coming out from the situation and I do anyway I'm like I don't think any of those things I didn't somehow I was like nodding along to an opinion I completely disagree with and and you just find yourself wanting to please all the time and I think that actually what this essay has sort of taught me is that sometimes it's the very thing that you think is not worth saying that you think is so obvious to you that you know it's hardly groundbreaking and actually um writing that down and having such good responses has taught me that it's obvious to you but actually to other people you know it's a mixture of like ah oh, you expressed it in a way that I'd never thought of it and also it really resonates and Absolutely. I think that's you know in the end like what I hope writing you know is for I, something that really came across from exposure is I think a fear that a lot of women have not just female writers is that of being misunderstood I'm very controlling and I have to fight the urge not to control the perceptions of others. For example, I feel most misunderstood when people look at my Instagram profile and consider my modest following as like my greatest work, you know. Um, But equally, I understand that it's their prerogative to decide how they value me um, and that I shouldn't develop my own value system through the perceptions of others. But of course, that's, that's easier said than done. Do you struggle with the fear of being misunderstood and having published now a book and an essay have you exorcised some of those fears or I think I think I definitely have it and it's something I fight against because I think like you say you want ultimately have zero control over that and um you know I think in the end it's one of those things where it's best to step away I mean I obviously you you want to find something you're really passionate about when you're writing. You want to, like, inhabit that world. But then you don't want to be its prisoner any longer. And if you feel too much affiliation, like it's your child that you're putting out into the world, then any criticism, any misunderstanding, you know, it's way too tempting to basically helicopter parent the whole time. (laughs) And actually that, I think, ends up basically getting you the reputation for being X, Y, Z, you know, controlling instead. You know, it's basically you're in a double bind. I find the most soothing thing is to basically be... Um, you know stepping away from from it and that's why I guess it's really difficult when so for example this is from a small press they don't have all of the cash I do want to help them promote it I do want to you know um, 
talk about it and 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 use my social media to talk about it etc because otherwise we're not going to make any money from it for example at the same time i think sometimes i have to say actually right now there's other things that you'd rather be thinking about talking about and you don't want to basically think of this book as a extension of yourself you've got to think of it more i guess the way that you do with the conversation because ultimately it's a conversation with a reader they come away from it thinking what they're going to think you come away from it thinking whatever this is what happened and you might have two totally different versions of that i mean that's even when you go to see a film and you see it i've often done that thing where you see a film twice and in one cinema the audience is cracking up and it's because someone started laughing that it's put the mood in a certain way and everyone comes out thinking they've seen a comedy and you can see the same film again and everyone's like completely silent yeah. and you think oh okay reception is actually got very little to do with the intention it's often to do with you know what's going on in that reader's personal life at that particular moment and there's never you can't go and sit next to that reader and like take them through it with a red pen and go actually that's not what I meant there it's so hard that I've been thinking about this more and more recently and I think it is because women often have to fight that much harder to be heard or seen or understood in their workplace not just with creation but with a job that that takes a lot of them it's so difficult I think to set because of that to separate yourself from your work but like more and more look at Zadie Smith who you've quoted in the book and who you've quoted today who I just am very taken with (laughs) and who I just I love listening to her talk about her kind of process and Mm. and more and more when I listen to her I get the sense that she understands the importance that she is not her writing and that if she becomes her books then in that moment when she is, it is white teeth and she is the nation's ingen- um, you know, protégé and she is the most adored person, it, then it means if you're defined by that, then the moment that a book is a flop, then it's like... Then you are a flop. You are, you are an existential despair. It's, it, but it's so difficult, that separation, you know, on paper or in a cognitive way is so easy to say, but actually living that is quite hard I think yeah and I think there's I mean there's two things I would say about that one is that it's it's especially difficult for a writer because when you're not writing are you a writer mm. so I feel like when I have like you know a block or whatever and I'm not writing I'm not getting any writing done for whatever reason can I still call myself that is that still my identity and so often you need to feel an attachment to your work so that you can justify calling yourself something which otherwise feels a bit presumptuous that's so true I think <laughs> and so sometimes I'm like well you know let's say a novelist writes a book every couple of years every four or five years maybe for the time in between those books coming out if they're not doing another writerly job are they still a writer? You know, can they define themselves that way? Of course they can. But it's just that sort of mental, I think the ability to like see yourself as a writing persona, like in the way that Beyonce has Sasha Fierce, maybe, <laughs> and then to be able to retreat from that as well. And, I, you know, I think, again, with, with women as opposed to men often too, I think women are are they feel like they have uh they're not going to be given the benefit of the doubt they're not going to be given that second chance they're going to be cancelled or whatever if they express one idea that perhaps doesn't chime with their their overall brand as a writer or what their readers want to hear and I think that men are perhaps um you know because like you say about belonging in a room I think that well certainly a lot of the men I know have that sense of entitlement to take up space or to write about their experiences or to go into a room and start a conversation assuming that the world is sort of on their side well so men don't get cancelled women in the public eye women in the in the in the pop 
because they're supposed to want to get cancelled and so the second they don't it's like you're not playing by the rules like why don't you care what people think of you and it's almost like a kind of punishment to say oh you're you're getting a bit above your station by claiming not to care what people think because women are supposed to be empathetic and they're supposed to care how they're perceived men get things done because they don't let things get to them and it's just a very different I guess gendered understanding of what women's writing is supposed to be which is pleasing whereas men's writing I think is supposed to be like provocative provocative disruptive yeah Yeah. so true like many writers you write of the destructive but generative force of writing it would be better not to write anymore certainly if writing means publishing but eliminating anxiety would to me be dystopian can you talk a little bit about that masochistic kind of push and pull you know writing is the and I know exactly what you mean writing is the thing you find hardest but it is the most it is the most kind of sustenance to you in a way can't live it can't live without it yeah I think I mean it's one analogy I think I used in the essay and one I use with myself is like I guess falling in love or one of those things where you're like this could definitely end badly (laughs) and you know 50 50 or even it's certainly not you know like when for example, when I've been in a relationship and a best friend's been single and she's like, well, you can't possibly have any problems because you're in a relationship as though that fixes everything. You're like, no, they have all of their own problems. I think with writing, especially to someone who thinks, oh, I'd give anything to be a writer, I felt pressure certainly to sort of act like it was just the greatest thing that had ever happened to me. And I was so, so lucky. And instead of thinking of it like any other job, which has got good and bad days and Mm -hmm. negative and positive qualities I felt like the privilege involved in it meant that I was not allowed to find anything problematic Mm. and I think that that's it just it's just not it's not true it's not true to my experience I think that um I also have this weird thing where when someone tells me they've read my book I feel almost hostile. Like, I'm kind of like, you know, okay, fine, good mm. good for you, which is not obviously what I say, but this weird feeling of defensiveness or prickliness can threaten to kind of rise up. Why do you think that is? Oh, God. I can I say why I think it is from what I read from your essay? The bit where you say, and I, I had never identified that as a feeling, but I was like, oh, yeah, that is a feeling, where you say, I find the imbalance of information uncomfortable. <laughs> Yes, yeah. <laughs> I can totally. Um, I can. I think. I think you said that exactly right. Yeah, I think that is what it is, and I think you know we're used to that perhaps with a therapist, but even then, I find that I've tried therapy once or twice, and and to lesser or greater extents, it's really helped me. But even the feeling of like a therapist knowing everything about you, and then you leave at the end of the session, and you think. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What's their surname? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, know, I, I have that funny feeling where I. This is why I think the myth that anxiety happens to shy people or people who are not in any way outgoing is is so harmful because I think I operate best when I can see people's reactions, when I can see their laughing or smiling or nodding. And, you know, in fact, even I remember at university, a friend of mine, um, who I won't name, but is, is an anxious person, gave me this tip where he said, oh, when I talk to people, I talk very slowly and I say very little. 
and I let them do the work so that they come away worrying they haven't impressed me. And I'm the opposite. I'm like a puppy. I'm like nodding along. Can I suggest that's quite a, a male co-parenting? <laughs> yes. It so well. For... No, it doesn't. But you come away not... I, well, I, I often come that away from a conversation. You. No, it wouldn't be me. But if I had a conversation with that slow-talking person who made me do all the work, it would work on me. I would come away oh, thinking... Oh, it would 100% work Oh, what have I said that was so stupid? I didn't manage to impress them. Instead of thinking like well, why didn't they volunteer any information, you know? And that's the thing as well about... It's one thing to have um, reception from readers or from critics, but the problem with the internet is a lot of people have a lot of opinions. And everyone's a critic. And everyone's a critic. And, it, you know, the, the internet rewards vitriol way mm. more than it rewards, like, positive or even just thoughtful, constructive criticism. So, you know, people just love to, like, get on Goodreads and let out all their feelings. Well, there's, just... like, an empathy crisis on the internet. Oh, yeah. We've, people we've just assume, oh, here's a book on Goodreads, so this author has zero feelings and obviously is really up themselves walking around right now with the spring in their step because they're published. Does Goodreads haunt you guys enough? I never read it because, you know, once someone said they stopped reading my first book when they came to a line about a fart and it was just horrific and there was a curse word. <laughs> And then they just proceeded to slaughter it. And then I looked on their Amazon profile. The last thing they'd re- reviewed was a clear plastic storage box. That's my favourite. <laughs> and they said, this box is great because the clearness means you can see through it. <laughs> the lid snaps. So I was like, you know what? Everyone essentially could be reviewing plastic boxes or my books. So I'm going to stop treating this like it's the kind of, you know, the oracle telling me whether or not I've done, done well. That's the other thing. I guess seeking approval, you're not going to find it there. So no, it's endless. It's endless. I'm glad that you mentioned the myth that only shy people have anxiety because something that I have confronted time and time again and I have to say is something that I've found equally difficult is that anyone that I told about my anxiety would be like, but you're doing so well, but you're so confident, but you but you look great on the outside or you know or or especially when I've become a new mother found it really this is something that Dolly knows but I don't think I talked to that many people about it so I found it really problematic that people congratulate me on losing my baby weight but the reason why I lost my baby weight is because I lost my appetite so for me they were congratulating me on something that was actually really sad even though of course it was great to be able to wear my clothes again that I'd really missed for 10 months so I found that really problematic and I think we have this really extraordinary thing that if someone is loud and passionate or the thing that I found really difficult and why I didn't confront anxiety so long is I was like but I'm a really positive person I love life so I can't have that and it's it's reconciling those like really kind of hypocritical sides of sides of your many selves yeah I I definitely think that from my let's say kind of group of friends which is obviously hardly uh, kind of It doesn't say much about society at large, but I definitely feel like anxiety can happen to you not just when things are going really badly, but when actually things on the surface seem to be going well. And and I think often it's for people who've had things go wrong in the past or who worried about what could happen when you could lose these things that you've worked so hard for. That's when your mind gets overactive. And, you know, that's the other thing about it. So, like you were saying, these two sides of yourself and often what's so horrible about anxiety is you're like but I'm not this person I think mm. this way I'm positive I'm outgoing I'm xyz or or whatever it is and then your anxious self almost like is this other it's like you inverted in a way it's like all the things that you're not in your normal life perhaps and you say in the essay that was that struck such a chord for me is that 
you can't recall who the real you yeah. is at that point. Yeah, and I think, I mean, for, for me as a fiction writer, that's especially the case because I'm moving outside of my own, you know, this is me, Olivia, the writer, and now I'm this character. So I guess, you know, without wanting to be like, mm, I'm an empath, I do feel like I move around a lot outside of my own thick sense of identity but we all do because we we're all, all do. i was I, there's a I, there's a brilliant book i don't know if you've read it called selfie by will store i have read it yeah so i was reading and it's i found that quite a confronting read because like it has to remind us which i think we find really difficult that we are a lot of different selves mm. and that really rails against our idea of being this fixed like it's me. Yeah, that's yeah. me. It's that's who a very I kind of 19th century or like even just like an enlightenment idea of like who the self is. Mm-hmm. And I think more and more, and that's why I wrote this book about writing now is because I think the internet has changed that in a big way. It's like the most obvious way that we now have all these multiple identities. But I guess the, the other thing about anxiety in terms of making you feel like you've got these two maybe polarised selves or like a really extreme version of the, the latent issues that you normally have is that I found it, helpful to try to reframe it not as like this thing that I am beset by but you touched on it like this generative force but also ultimately anxiety is there for good reasons Mm. like the body wants us to stay alive so it gives us this inbuilt thing which is like watch out for danger so I've tried to think of it less like this adversary or this thing that's not me and almost more like the way I treat like an overanxious parent like who Basically, their intentions are pure and they want you to be happy or they think that they do, but actually they just want you to be safe. And that can often, if you think about the times you've had arguments with your parents about something you felt you wanted to do and they wanted to hold you back because they were just worried about you. I found that like, for example, another way to to think of it is I've called mine um, Clive, Um, not to offend anyone whose parents might be called Clive, but just to give it this like sort of adult slightly kind of cautious sort of I don't know distancing thing but at the same time to think of it as ultimately benevolent yeah like yes it can be destructive if you let it get out of control but if you think of it like this sort of helicopter parent and you're like shush Clive like we've done this before it's gonna be okay (laughs) that's that's what Bryony Gordon said helped her with her OCD is that she had to name it and Mm -hmm. she had to think of it as a person because somehow and it's actually the same... I think that contains it by personalising it. I remember Sarah Pascoe actually said to me once when I was talking to her about um, the way I find I cope with things and I default to these coping mechanisms that I just hate. And I was stressing out about it to her and she said, I think you need to think of that person who does that as like a really amusing child and you just have to be like, oh, Dolly, is this what you're doing today? Is this how overwhelmed <laughs> Yeah, I think humour can gen- genuinely help. Like, a, the, a therapist that I saw for a bit was really helpful because when I describe in the book this feeling of skinlessness, like, as though I have mm. no protection and I'm sort of hyper-vigilant and I just feel like my skin is crawling, she was like, okay, can you think of any humorous images that that makes you think of? And I was like, sausages I don't know why (laughs) anyway so like it's one of the things I've got this list on my phone it's obviously you know you can have anxiety that's sort of low level Mm -hmm. throughout your daily life but when like an attack Mm -hmm. or like a really extreme bout of it is about to come on I have this list on my phone and I go through it and I think naming and going through a list basically what it does for me is remind me that like the flu or cystitis or something that you get and it's gonna be horrible but then it will pass exactly it's it's a thing that isn't actually in your mind personally to you but like like any of these things with a kind of set of symptoms that are common to everyone and you feel less like oh my god I'm an awful person I can't believe I'm feeling this way what is wrong with me 
I'm all like, I've caught the flu, I've got cystitis. Do you think that's a real problem, I think, and I wonder if that's why women suffer from anxiety much higher, is I know that personally I feel this, and you've just hinted at it, and I'm sure that a lot of other people feel it, is the guilt over feeling like that sometimes even overrides the feelings I have, because the guilt turns to self-loathing, and then I've actually lost, I was probably worrying about a piece of work, which doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things, you know, I'm not going to get like sued for doing a subpar piece of work, but in your mind you then feel it metamorphs into this this, yeah. this huge self It's like when you get hangover guilt or when you've had too much coffee and those things stimulate that feeling, which for me reminds me of anxiety attack. And I almost feel yeah. worse and more full of self-loathing that I'm feeling that or that I'm in some way to blame because it's coming from me. And that will be what actually makes it ten times worse than if I could be like, oh, you know, here it's coming and yeah. it's going gonna, it's gonna to yeah. pass. <laughs> You bring up the rat wheel of insomnia that many of us are close friends with. I think of the six people in my family, there's only one of us that doesn't suffer from insomnia. And it's become as much of a massive problem, I think, as, you know, anxiety, obviously, with them being very closely related. It can be a shortcut to feeling completely insane, a lack of sleep. And it brings around that hypervigilance you speak of where everything feels too bright, too loud, too much, and things sort of crowd into your peripheral vision. How much has your insomnia or relationship with insomnia contributed to your anxiety? Are you still suffering chronically with it? Or have you found kind of a way post-exposure out of the sleeplessness? Uh, I definitely still suffer from it, but I find, I don't know, I think the issues that plague me kind of shift around, and I think that there's what I might call almost not good insomnia exactly, but sometimes like when I'm thinking about something like a piece of work and I'm really excited about it and I can't sleep and I'm lying there kind of fizzing in a in a way that doesn't really, to me, feel... It just feels like you know, I can't sleep because it's Christmas tomorrow. That kind of insomnia I can deal with. It's more when, you know, when I'm kind of, oh God, I'm about to turn 30 in basically two months. And so my current kind of, you know, I have a basically a kind of litany of worries that I go through that are to do with the all, you, you know. <laughs> Dolly had that turning 30. You're like uh, money, property, career, relationships, uh, family, health, uh, all the all the stuff I kind of go through them. And when I'm done with one, I'll turn to the other as though it's like, okay, I have a relief not to be worrying anymore about like my family's well-being. Now I'll think about how I arrange my furniture in this imaginary flat that I'll never own. And so you just kind of oh, go... That happened for two... That was about six months, by the way, for me. And then it cooled off a little bit when I turned 13. Yeah, I think that it's... I mean, so like you said, it, it, this affects women perhaps disproportionately, arguably because women um, find it easier to come forward, whereas I think men maybe don't get themselves diagnosed but at the same time I think that there is a lot to do with women at my age feeling like everything in the, in, in lots of ways they've been brought up to think everything should be in their control yeah. and then suddenly you're at this juncture where in theory you're an adult you get to decide your own bedtime and there you are lying in bed thinking actually there's so much that's out of my control and I'm like waiting on someone else to give me permission. Why do you or... think millennials are particularly controlling because my mum finds it really interesting how controlling me and my friends are because she just wasn't like that they were much more of a like this is life and I've I've, you know I've just got to roll with it whereas I know for me and a lot of our friends it is that like obsession with keeping everything just so I I wonder if it was the time we were born in I definitely think there's been more of an emphasis since like baby boomers came of age on the idea of like finding happiness Mm. and and so that I think 
makes you feel like there's this paralysis of choice, which is obviously a privilege, mm. but at the same time, it makes you feel like there's lots of wrong answers. And I think that, you know, going to university and having to pay to do it and racking up debt to do it and choosing a subject that is right when everyone else is also going to university, that, for example, can make you think... I, I mean, it started for me... Um, you know, obviously at school or earlier even as a child. But I definitely feel like now each choice you make, which is obviously great, we're liberated to make all these choices, but it can end up really eating away at you in terms of feeling like, well, if you mess up or if you make the wrong decision, then it's like you're on a kind of, you know, you're on a kind of one-way street, basically, and you can't turn around or you're sort of paralysed by doubt or indecision. Whereas I think probably more... For my parents, certainly for my grandparents' generation, you know, my granny didn't go to university. She left school at 16. She was like, I'm going to try. I'll be- become a typist. Then who knows? Oh, I've become a journalist. That's great. But but I don't think that they were probably raised with the same sorts of aspirations. That fixation on goals. Yeah, that fixation on goals, that sense of, like, you can do anything. You know, I, I, I was, you know, a child of the 90s, listening to the Spice Girls, and then you kind of hit that realization where you're like yeah in theory I've got a lot more choice and a lot more options and and everything's in my control but actually the same inhibiting things are still there in a different way but I just think that we had a reality check later perhaps about that I mean also arguably like our parents generation left the world in like a little bit of a mess for us (laughs) so when you read a headline like we have like five minutes to reverse climate change you're like oh god (laughs) I do yeah I do think there's this funny sense of like are you giving us all these the sense of many options but also this weird feeling of narrowing a possibility at the same time yeah yeah totally totally it's a really good point I'm also very interested in the link that you draw between anxiety and total creative inertia you write such a vivid account that I'm sure so many people will find as uncomfortable to read as I did of what it is to feel like you cannot produce anything it's this horrible claustrophobic quite agitated account of trying to write not being able to write a thing and reverting to procrastination self-doubt and self-sabotage what do you think the link is there it's obviously not laziness is it is it the that the anxious person is often the people pleaser and the people pleaser strives for perfection i think perfection is probably yeah that's the link for me i think i mean you may not be a fan of lena dunham but that episode at the very beginning of Girls, which is the only series I watched, where she's, like, shunting around her, like, think, bedroom floor on her butt and she's, like, eating condiments from the jar rather than, like, finishing her ebook, and then, like, she gets a splinter in her ass. Oh, God, that like, episode. Th- yeah, I think that really resonates with me when I'm feeling like I've got this amazing opportunity. It's so rare and it's such a privilege to be given space to speak mm-hmm. and to be listened to. What am I going to do with that? It's got to be great. It's got to be perfect. I can't mess up and so for me it's like I don't you know I don't want to I don't want to write anything down or put my name to anything that doesn't like 100% fit with my idea of what I wanted to say and I think what I'm becoming more comfortable with is basically there's always going to be a gap between what you had in your mind and the execution like there's and in a way that's a good thing you know you think I'm going to I don't know write this amazing screenplay or this great song and this is how I sort of see it being in my head when I had this idea and then what you finally produce of course there's going to be a gap between like the mental image of what you were going to do and then the reality because that's like the same between fantasy and reality you know and I think 
that understanding that that gap is okay and also that it's basically what keeps on giving you the impetus to write again so I mean for me the danger is that basically creative block stops you from writing anything in that present moment but then you also can't write anything else so when I was having a block about my second novel that's when I wrote this essay I was like okay I'm I'm so stressed out about the idea of like following sympathy with something else I don't know what to say there's so much expectation I'm just gonna write this small essay as like a chaser and just divert my attention that's what I do when I'm facing that feeling it's almost write something I wasn't asked to write or do Mm. something I wasn't asked to do taking away the kind of purpose I guess from it but at the same time I don't I mean to be honest like is it resisting that urge which I'm sure lots of people have it definitely feels familiar to me of if I can't do it brilliantly I don't want to do it at all yeah, I I hate admitting that that is a factor at play, but I think I think that probably is it. Like I I'm not very good, I don't think, at putting out my kind of beta mode stuff, you know? And I think you probably that's for example why Instagram for all its problems can be good for me is because it teaches me to like put something out there just sort of quickly-ish and then you can take it away again, you know, that feeling otherwise. Play with the process. Exactly, play with the process. Um whereas I think if you're on timelines, let's say of novels, then it might be years before you put something out into the world. And when it arrives it's got a hardback and it's got a launch event to go with it. And so finding ways that I can do small stuff, whether that's journalism or you know talks or whatever like it's the small stuff that takes the pressure off the big stuff I you know I have but I'm still working it out (laughs) I'm definitely still working out I think so far my tip is to be um to work on a different project for a bit and then come back to it that gap that you talk about one of the most important things as a creator that I've ever ever watched is Ira Glass talking exactly about that gap where he said what's so difficult is for any kind of ambitious creative person who's been obsessive normally over a certain author, a certain writer, a certain musician, you follow all the formula so that you have this like excellent taste and you obsess over this taste and you obsess over those creators. You kind of absorb what you think that they do. You try and emulate it in your own way. You have this vision of it in your head and then it's so devastating when yeah. you produce it and you're like, but I followed all this yeah. stuff. And then, you know, in a way, like, that's why... So I think I might also have heard Eric Glass say that. I can't remember, but it definitely sounds familiar. And even that's why his format, in terms of, you know, This American Life, like, having the three different stories that rub up against each other and there's no one thing that is, like, the totem, that is, like, the perfection. Yeah. The the stories achieve power together Mm. as this kind of, like, you know... And in the same way with writing this essay, I got so stressed out about providing this very watertight argument that moved from a very sort of stout intro to a very like sort of punchy you know conclusion and after I was like oh no I can't and I'm thinking about anxiety it makes me feel awful I don't know how to do this essay and then I was just like write it like you were creating a collage like you are adding quotes like you are basically a kind of process of um I don't know assemblage yes rather than you know when you have a I, I, in fact, there are two types of writers. I think one of them is if you, I mean, if they're a sculptor, like if you compare a writer to a sculptor, one of them is um, using clay to like make the form, 
and the other one is like chipping and chipping away at a rock and I feel like I'm a chipper away yeah. I like have this rock of all this stuff that I just throw into like a I don't know a folder on my computer and then like through attrition I kind of get rid of stuff and then the form starts to emerge mm. but yeah I, I do that you know how some people literally write almost in the finished like a linear yeah that's paragraph. a confident way of writing whereas I, I put do. down like 10,000 like for an 800 word piece on something really basic I'll write like 10,000 words of sort of like I don't know existential agony and then I end up with like 800 <laughs> words on what's a good present at a dinner party yeah <laughs> like, I'm the same and then people are like what's your process I'm like you don't want to know because <laughs> the dump the dump and fire yeah I'm really impressed by people who can basically just choose each word in a sentence as well that's how A.A. Gill did it didn't he 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 wrote he wrote down and then he would dictate to someone at the Sunday Times and if I was doing that when I was dictating my words I would be going oh no no hold on I thought of a better way to say that but he had such confidence Mm. in the words he'd written down they needed no revision I think actually just going back to what you said that I also think perhaps is helpful is leaving as little time as possible before starting in between getting like let's say a commission or being asked to do a job and the fear just grows yeah the fear grows and also I think that when you finally come down to it you sort of feel like oh it's it's got to be great whereas if you're just like secreting away little quotes or like thoughts as you have them and then when you come to it you've got the confidence of already having all these little ideas it's not it's like approaching it in a kind of sidelong way rather than squaring up to it in this kind of dramatic face off like an exam yeah Yeah. (laughs) i yeah i mean it's like a little cheat i guess but it helps me there's been a kind of historic frustration for female novelists that you touch on um and you've spoken about earlier in our chat in regards to Milkman about how evidence of their personal life seems to be the most interesting thing to mine in the art rather than their art itself. What were your experiences of that and do you believe that to be a gendered issue? I mean, I'm sure it's one that also affects men, but I think it does disproportionately affect women. I think that... Even if you look at, like, the history of women's writing, it's come from a place that's often, you know, thought of as being interior or domestic or voice-led. And I think that, you know, if you compare that to patriarchal or male narratives, it's about, like, going on quests and adventures and writing about politics and war. And to me, you know, domestic stuff can absolutely be telling you a lot about politics. I firmly believe the personal is political. But I just think that because women have been sort of taught to feel like in order to write they have to slightly adhere to these traditions Um, and also because when you are confined that it does become very fertile ground Um, it's not that I'm not interested in those stories I I think you know to be honest voice-led fiction is just as interesting as kind of a thriller but I do think that when it comes to talking about the work men are more usually afforded the respect of critical attention whereas women by putting themselves into the spotlight basically seem to forfeit that as a courtesy and Mm. instead they're expected to undergo some kind of personal interrogation because I feel like in order for someone to be interested in what the woman is writing they have to sort of see what she looks like and know whether or not she was wearing a scrap of makeup in the interview Mm. and it's not that I personally had a really bad experience of that I think on the whole um, you know, it was it was fine and I was really lucky to meet a lot of really interesting people to talk about the book with. But I definitely found that people would assume I'd written about 
my own life and that they would discuss it in those terms, which I found really uncomfortable and also really difficult because, yes, I did set it in the present. Yes, a girl is the main narrator. I am a girl. And all of this kind of stuff where I felt like that's how I needed to start my story because otherwise it seems like such a kind of, you know, absurd enterprise to start creating made-up stuff. So I always seem to start with a reality of sorts and then from there jump off into into fiction. But I just found it really, um, really presumptuous that people would talk about it in that like you said about congratulating you on losing baby weight it's it's, it's a different thing but it's, it comes from the same sort of place of women are fair game you can talk about their personal lives interchangeably with their work because basically they're lucky to be being discussed at all um whereas I think so with true. men there's a sense of like I I have a personal life you can talk about that if you want to but it's not an assumption that it's fair game We talked about that with Meg Wallitzer, actually. We're both huge fans of the domestic novel and how you put it, the personal is political. Could not agree more. I find familial dynamics by far the most interesting thing (laughs) in a book. Um, And you didn't even write a memoir and you were saying how family friends were asking about sympathy as if you were Alice obsessed with a Japanese I had a lot of ex-boyfriends all assume the same characters are about them and you're like guys if I could get you all in a room so you could all see that you all think each other are you know I I was just I understand like it's it's weird when someone you know makes I'm using air quotes art but at the same time I think it's really inhibiting and I just there, there came a point where I was like yes your dad will read the sex scenes keep writing and you know in a way it's just like men don't have to to worry about that in the same way because they don't worry what people think of them in the same way. They're not worried that, like, people are going to ask them these questions that then... Well, likeability isn't a complex for them in the same yeah, way. Yeah, and I, I just sort of think as well that there's... In the essay, I talk about cat person as an example of this double bind where people sort of assume that when women write about women's lives, they're only talking about their own life and that it's this, like, less of an effort. And I sort of think that even if you are writing about your own life and you're using fiction or whatever it is, so what? It's still, it's still like you a say really that interesting... about Roxane Gay. She says when people suggest that writing a memoir is easier than writing a novel, she says I still have to have a beginning, a middle and an end. There still has to be a kind of cohesive narrative. She said this idea that I'm just sitting on my bed and opening up my heart locket diary yeah, exactly. and I'm just jotting down my thoughts. And no one, as both you and Gay note in your essay, is calling Nausgaard a diarist, which arguably right and he, and he cheesed sorry I'm going out of my way not to use some swear words I've never said cheese you can swear in my life. okay <laughs> cheese <laughs> you can definitely swear um, yeah and now Scarred <laughs> cheesed is... off <laughs> With Nausgaard, it's kind of ridiculous because he wrote stuff that was incredibly personal and very detrimental about the people around him, including his ex-wife and, uh, and his then next wife and depression and his parents and you know half his family weren't speaking to him and I think they were the only Nausgaards where he came from in Norway (laughs) so they were very much identifiable and 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 yet that's I mean he I think individually has has started to take stock of that and how as the writer you end up often destroying your kind Mm -hmm. of personal life in order to make your art but that wasn't what the press charged him with they saw this as this incredible work of art that was worth throwing whoever in front of the bus. And I just think that with women, I mean, if you look at I Love Dick, the way that people obsessed 
back when it was first published in like 97 about how awful it was what she'd done to this man and she was like I didn't even identify him I called him dick he identified himself by complaining you know it it didn't if that's where you want to put the spotlight Nora Ephron in her like I think it was her latter introduction to Heartburn saying that like her ex-husband was furious and she was like I'm sorry for writing about exactly what happened yeah exactly I, I had that with this essay too in the sense that I didn't actually well none of my family and also my my boyfriend didn't read it before I wrote it and that was something I was worried about and I am still worried about like I don't know if they've read it yet. I know, for example, that my boyfriend's mum, before um, it came out, was like, I'm going to buy loads of copies and give it to everyone in their stocking. And I was like, oh, maybe not. Not a stocking filler. Yeah. I was like, it's quite grim. The writing of other women and the sharing of their experiences in life, in creating, in their process and in publishing, seems to bring you great solace throughout the throughout the essay. In fact, in the final lines, you endeavour to kind of crowd more of those stories and those voices into your mind to continue to comfort and galvanise you. How important do you think storytelling and kind of experience sharing is in terms of uh, understanding and treating anxiety? For me, I'd say it's really important. Like, that's where I have gone from, I'd say about two or three years ago, when I first started to feel like anxiety was disrupting my everyday life, to now, I think the thing that's made the most difference is, yes, going for a course of CBT and for a bit to a therapist when I could afford it, but actually just talking to other people and reading about other people's experiences has been the difference between thinking, oh my God, I'm going mad and this is awful and I will never feel better to this is a facet of human experience. Actually, it's also in many ways a social disease as well as like a personal or, you know, a kind of very individual experience. And I think it's made me feel paradoxically more sane by um, by spending more time thinking about this sort of mental disorder I don't think I would write if I didn't have that fear sometimes and I think you know there are lots of writers who have also had that experience where something is off something's wrong and you find ways to give it order shape communicate it and that's what starts to develop your voice I guess as a writer so I can't be wholly down it's on that it. slightly depressing reality that actually like sometimes you are more productive when you are anxious yes. and it's like okay I don't want the anxiety back but how can I get like a little bit of that frenetic energy that yeah I was, exactly that I exactly I mean it's it's funny because you know it's sort of when you when people say things like oh I'd just like to be a millionaire and move to LA and blah blah and I'm like no because you need seasons and you need you know you need to feel like something's like hard and worth working for and all that kind of stuff you don't want life to not I'm always obsessed with when people say they want to win the lottery and I'm like I can't think of anything Anything worse than winning 100 million every relationship in your life would change basically you'll get a coke habit and you'll be friends if I was going to win the lottery I would like to win like a couple of million just give everyone, just give everyone in my family. That's a, so down to earth. <laughs> I thought about where I don't want that. would go. <laughs> Olivia, thank you so much for sharing your stories, both personal and fictional, with all of your readers and our listeners and us today. I know that both of us have learned so much from everything you've written and said. You cover so many important, weighty and painful subjects and we applaud you for your honesty and generosity. Thank so you thank so you. much for having me. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you very much to everyone who listened to the Hilo. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. It helps other people find us and boosts us in the charts. You can email us show at gmail.com or tweet us at show. Exposure is out now, published by Peninsula Press. Please do note that nothing discussed in today's episode constitutes advice from a healthcare professional. If you think you may be suffering from anxiety or an anxiety disorder, please do contact your local GP or visit mind.org.uk and anxietyuk.org.uk to get the help and support you need. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.